Carl Truman, a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, in a short essay entitled Delighting in Death, wrote this. How do we distract ourselves from our bodily mortality? How do we pretend we are in control even of death itself when our bodies remind us otherwise? Well, there are numerous ways of pretending bodies do not count. The ultimate distracting buzz is to pretend that we can take control of death itself. We kill children in the womb, we kill the old and the infirm, and if we cannot deny our own mortality by living forever, we can at least determine for ourselves the time and circumstances of our own deaths. Make no mistake. The giddy, grinning delight which the glorious steinums of this world display concerning abortion is driven by more than just the desire to stop rape victims having unwanted children. It is powered by the grotesque thrill which holding power over life and death brings with it. Well, our worldview as people of God is not based on the prevailing view of the culture and it's certainly hopefully not based on the emotion of unpreparedness, we are called to establish the way we are because of who we are, according to God's word. It's not about the culture. For us, it's about the cross of Christ. In matters of human life, we have a divine take on things. Violations have always brought great horrors to the human family. And whatever spiritual crisis you have faced, whether before believing on the Lord Jesus Christ or after believing in him, whatever counseling you have had or have not had, forgiveness at the cross of Christ is available. And so I want to share with you this morning uh, on a very heavy topic, of course, on the value of human life. What do Christians think about human life? Because that's what really matters is... What do we think? What does God think about these things? And it matters what we think, because how we think will determine how we act. In fact, that's what the scriptures tell us in Romans chapter 12. That's what transformation is about. The renewing of our minds will cause the transforming of our lives through the power of the Spirit of God at work in us. And so what Christians think about these things is the whole topic of this series and I trust that you are thinking like a Christian, or more and more thinking like a Christian in these days. I wish to present to you truth this morning as I understand it from God's word, that we might learn to embrace the truth of his word. I also recognize that among us, we, are, we come from different backgrounds and different situations. We have different family situations, and I, I understand that in the matters of things like the value of human life. There is probably a great deal of differing opinion, a great deal of differing um, experience, and perhaps there are things in our backgrounds that we regret. I want to very much emphasize and re-emphasize, as always, in everything we talk about together with respect to these things, our God is a forgiving God, our God is a God who is gracious and kind. Our God is the God who says, go and sin no more. Our God is the one who brings comfort to us in our failures 
that we might grow stronger in the Lord and that we might reflect his glory in the decisions that we make from each day forward. And so we present to you uh, uh, what the Bible has to say about human life. Shall we pray together? Our Father and our God, we ask you to visit us with your power. Would you take your word and help us to understand it? I pray, Father, that you would uh, work in each individual heart. Lord, I don't know the situations, the backgrounds, the the various teachings that are represented in, in this room this morning, but you know every single heart. And Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God would minister to all of us through the teaching of your word. Lord, teach us to know the truth. Teach us to know how to think biblically. Teach us how to know to, how to think like Christians in a culture that's gone crazy. I pray, Father, that you would help us to know right from wrong. Uh, we are called to be that kind of people. You have granted to us the, the, the power and presence of the Spirit of God to be able to discern what is right and what is wrong. And so I pray, Father, that today our, our hearts would be fixed on the truth and that, Lord, as you present it to us, that we would embrace it and desire to live it and desire, Father, to um, seek, your, seek your forgiveness, to repent for those things that we have done in our lives or permitted in our lives or, or been silent about where you... you uh, uh, have been wronged, where the things of God have been turned upside down. I pray, Father, you would uh, bring us to a place of repentance, that we could be forgiven and that we could move on and, and, and uh, take the, the next steps of our journey with a, a more powerful resolve to, to live uh, the, the, uh, um, the truth of God's word in our lives. So, Father, we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to empower uh, this time together for asking in Jesus' name, amen. So we want to um, handle the whole matter of the value of human life and how to think like a Christian in respect to these things. And I want to um, handle this subject this morning by addressing a number of questions. And I want to uh, make the point to you this morning that um, I'm pretty certain that you won't be able to keep notes in the old-fashioned way and get everything written down because we're going to move fairly quickly. And, um, and, uh, but, but these notes are available at the office. They're available through our website. And um, you can jot down a few things that you want to jot down. But please don't get upset with me thinking that I think you have enough time to write things down. Because I know you probably don't. And uh, don't throw your pens at me. Okay? Because human life is valuable. Okay, what, how valuable is human life according to the scriptures? Because what God thinks is really what matters. What we think or what we read or what our culture thinks or what we emotionally think or even what a church thinks is not really so important as what does God really think. And I've tried to take a, little, a quick journey through the, the scriptures to give a, an idea, hopefully to build a foundation, to build a case for the value, the incredible value of human life as it is portrayed in the scriptures. And I'm going to begin with 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. I'm, we're going to project the verses for you, so uh, they'll be there. Uh, this may be an odd verse to start with, but really I think it's a nice segue from where we were last week, actually. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you, note, of the gracious gift of life. You know, I think this is a great way to start this whole subject. When you, 
when we're trying to understand uh, how God views life, you take this apart, you unpackage it. Life is a gift from a gracious creator. Each one of us here this morning are beneficiaries of a gift from God. And uh, by the way, the, uh, the idea, of course, is the undeserved intention of God to give you life. And it's to the specific one granted. Uh, the gift of life is not a surrogate thing. It's, it's to each individual human being this gift is granted. The transaction is between God and the one receiving the gift. We don't receive this gift on behalf of another person. We can't declare that someone doesn't have this gift if they're alive. This gift of life is granted to the specific one it's granted. Men and women are necessary for this to happen. The woman is certainly the carrier of a human being, but no human being is sovereign over life. God alone is. He is the one who is the grantor of the gift by his grace of life. As we continue to move, uh, actually as we move right back to the front of the book in Genesis chapter 1, it really establishes the the foundation for why human life is so valuable. In Genesis chapter 1, 27 to 28, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. All human life, according to this text, is distinct from the rest of creation, being uniquely made in the image of God. This establishes the... the uh, distinction in, uh, in, in living creatures between humans and animals and vegetables. Humans and animals are not the same thing. Vegetables are not the same thing. A carrot, you can kill a carrot and you can eat it. It's all right because a carrot has not been made in the image of God. But all human beings, listen to me, all human beings, whether large or small, tall or short, fat or skinny, disabled or incredibly healthy. Every single human being is distinct from all creation in that humans are made in the image of God. Now that means that human life is lifted to the plane of the sacred. The sacred because humans have a unique connection to the divine. The whole idea of image, the brand actually, the the brand that human beings are. We're the image of God brand. That's who we are. All human beings, whether, uh, whether a human being loves the Lord or hates the Lord, it does not change the fact that each human being is in the image of God. Uh, Sin and the fall, of course, marred the, uh, the visual and the practical of what it means to be in the image of God because the image of God, what it really means is in some way we are carriers of the essence uh, of, the, uh, re- of, of who we represent, in fact, of God. We, by being in the image, we, we carry the essence of who we represent, which means that all human beings have the capacity to be and act like God. That's what Christianity, that's what coming to a relationship with Christ is all about. 
Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is restoring in us, transforming us into the likeness or the image of Christ Jesus. So we are being moved more and more to reflect the image of God we were always designed to reflect. And uh, sin mars that, of course. The fall mars that. But by God's strength, we can become like God, restored by Christ. And it is so valuable, human life is so valuable, that God requires an immensely costly act to protect it. Listen to this from Genesis and in the Old Testament and then from Romans in the New Testament. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. Listen, they are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. What the Bible teaches us is human life is so valuable that any willful destruction of human life results in capital judgment from Almighty God and in fact, He grants the right to in fact take the life of those who willfully destroy life. Now that has some ramifications. It's a system of justice that God has portrayed in both the Old Testament and the New Testament heightens the high value of human life. In other words, um, in war or in crimes of, uh, of the taking of human life, God grants the right of the justice system to in fact require capital payment for the taking of life. That means that we are not called to be pacifists. We are not called to, to uh, reject the, the long arm of the law and the right of, of, of uh, those who are representatives of the government and of us, of the, of the culture, to protect and to serve and to, and to actually um, um, take life if necessary to protect human life. In other words, uh, it is absolutely, according to the, what I understand of the scriptures, it is absolutely um, sanctioned by God for a culture or a nation like ours to come against a culture like ISIS, the Islamic State of, of Iraq and Syria, who are willfully destroying human life. It is entirely appropriate for our military to rise up uh, on behalf of God and stop that from happening and require capital judgment for that occurring. Human life is so valuable that God gives the right to human beings the authority to protect human life to the ultimate. Now that has significant ramifications in the culture that we live and how we live. In Genesis 9-7 we are taught that as for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. The command of God to all of us is to produce life and not destroy it. The blessing of God, uh, fruitfulness in propagating uh, human life is the result of God's blessing. Taking of innocent life 
is in fact opposing, is, is in human opposition of the blessing of God. It is rising up against the blessing of God and rejecting it. In John 3.16, John 10.10, Romans 6.23, we learn how important life is to God. John 3.16, you know this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How important is human life to God? God the Father gave God the Son the responsibility to die on our behalf that we might have eternal life. In John 10.10, we learn that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus has come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. In John, uh, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God paid the ultimate price to graciously give us abundant and eternal life. The wicked counterpart to that is Satan himself. In John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the, uh, the antithesis to who God is. Uh, God's heart is for human life, an abundant life, an eternal life. The uh, heart of Satan is for stealing and killing and destroying. That's the, the mark, the distinction of the, the evil one, not the distinction of the people of God. We are entirely uh, different because of who God is. And then there's this great invitation by God in Deuteronomy chapter 30. The great invitation by God says this, This day I call the heavens... And the earth as witnesses against you that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The great invitation uh, by God to humankind is to choose life. So what does... God think of life, what, 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 is the, what should we think of life? How valuable is human life? It's of ultimate value. Everywhere, that's just a sampling of the scripture, but we, everywhere we go throughout the scriptures, we find the great value that God has placed on human life. Now, some, of course, in our culture, in, with respect to the value of human life, uh, would tend to agree, yes, human life is valuable. The big debate in our culture is, when does human life actually become human life? So that's a question that I think the scriptures can answer and help answer too. But let's first of all look at the possibilities. When does human life really begin? One of the um, confusing things in all of this um, discussion is the word conception. And uh, I'll... I'll, um, describe this more fully uh, as we go along, but um, what does conception really mean, for instance? And the Bible regularly translates a word, the word into conception that is really probably not translated very well and it doesn't help us. So I'm going to work our way through something here and show you a few things and see what you think about it. So when does human life really begin? And, and our, here are our options. At fertilization... Now, the potential for life, and, and often we call at fertilization conception. Often, often we would use that as a synonymous terminology. Is something a living soul at fertilization? 
Well, we have to consider the fact that 40, between 40 and 65% of all fertilized human eggs never implant. So then we need to ask the question, is human life, is a living soul more correctly described at implantation? And I would point out to you that the term Im at implantation is more synonymously called at pregnancy. Um, regularly in the Old Testament, the word that's translated for conceived really means pregnant. And I'll show you that in a few moments, the word hurrah, not hooray. <laughs> Although you can think of it that way. Hooray, we're pregnant. Um, or is it upon the formation of primitive blood cells? Because, and of course, that's 20 days after implantation because in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, it tells us there that life is in the blood. Or is it during the first trimester? We find out that within four weeks, there's a heartbeat. Or in the second trimester? Or at delivery? When does human life begin? When does a human become a living soul? When does the act of fertilization actually become the potential of a human being? Everyone should agree, I would think, that it's a long time before delivery. Yes? It has to be a long time before delivery. So let's consider this question, let's, because that's the question the culture is asking, that's the question we're, that we have to answer. That's the question that we need to know or have some confidence in what we're talking about. So what does the Bible say about these things? I'm going to point out a few texts that I think are helpful for us. Do the scriptures tr actually treat this question at all, or how do the scriptures tre treat this question? And, and part of the... the, the um, Part of the struggle for us is in the word that's used, used so regularly, conception or conceived um, in the Bible. The conceived, as we'll use it for now in italics, are treated as persons and of special interest to God. But where in this journey? Well, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it says there, Adam, depending on what translation you have, it says there, Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now, this is a really good translation, actually. Some of you might have, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. The word that's used here, hara, is not the word that's used for conception. It's the word that's used for pregnant. But what I want you to see here is that Cain is traced. The individual according to God's word, is traced back to the pregnancy, not simply to the birth or delivery. So when we're trying to understand what does God think or where does God, where, how is God viewing, Cain was of special interest to God at both pregnancy and birth. And the two words that are generally used are used both in this, in this particular verse. It says that, the word uh, yalad is the, that bore or delivered uh, Cain. 
If we also look at Job chapter 3, we come to a place where Job was lamenting that he was even born. He, he, uh, you know that it, uh, uh, all the horror problems for, for Job. And he, he says, states this in Job chapter 3 verse 3. May the day of my birth perish and the night it was said a boy is conceived. Uh, once again in this verse, it really, it, he's, the, the word that's really used here is a, a boy is pregnant, which... It doesn't mean that, obviously, because a boy can't become pregnant. But the text is teaching us here that, that, in fact, the day of Job's birth and the day that Job's mother became pregnant are considered by God as one and the same. There is life from God's perspective. It's Hebrew parallelism that is used in the text here. So you have both the words yalad is the, is the word for born or being delivered. The word hara is the word for pregnancy or implantation. Now David, in fact, in Psalm 51.5, adds a new angle to all of this. In uh, Psalm 51.5, David states, Surely I was sinful at birth, uh, yalad, Sinful from the time my mother conceived me, he uses the word yakam, which really means the night my mother, my mother and father made love. Which uh, backs it up from pregnancy, doesn't it? And so, um, one thing we become certain of as we journey into the scriptures that we can't become certain with complete certainty of how God views the beginning of human life. It is somewhere, at the very least, at pregnancy. And because God, what God determines will happen, will happen. And so even the fertilized egg that God determines will become a human being will, in fact, become a human being. So David goes on to write, of course, that in Psalm 139, 13 through 16, that, that he was yet to be advanced in the womb and on his way to greater advance. In other words, when he was still in the womb, he was, he was as much a human being as when he was outside of the womb. He was just in stages of development, just like all of us are. Whose days, he says, whose ordained days are traced by God before delivery. David says, all the days for me were, were known before even one of them happened. In other words, before the calendar started on my birth date, God was counting the days of my existence. In fact, in the Old Testament, of course, the pre-delivered are called children. They're not called zygotes, they're not called embryos, they're not called fetuses, not that they would have been, but it's important, I think, for us to understand that in God's word, in the words that God chooses to use, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 22, he's talking there about a baby pre-delivery and calling it a child, yaled. That's pretty significant. And the text there, of course, is when violence occurs and a pregnant woman is hurt and she miscarries, the, 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 what she miscarries, God calls a child. And he does not, God does not make the distinction of the date 
or where, what trimester this miscarriage takes place. In the New Testament, the word uh, in Greek for baby is brephos, and it makes no distinction between whether in the womb or outside of the womb. Still the same word, child, newborn baby. The brephos, of course, John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, verse 41 and 44. The word there is used, brephos, that when the child is in Elizabeth's womb. But likewise, when Jesus is an infant in his mother Mary's arms, already delivered, he's also called a brephos. So whether in the womb or outside of the womb, God's word calls the individual a child. What does the Bible have to say about abortion? Well, in a word, nothing. Not directly. Because in a culture of the scriptures, bearing children was considered a great blessing. The idea of abortion really didn't exist. That's why Paul didn't have to write out in his, in his uh, vice uh, lists abortion. Because it really was not part of the framework of, uh, of a, a culture that believed the bearing and having of children was a great blessing of God, which it is, which is what is presented in the scriptures. But sacrificing of children did exist. We know that the pagan nations, the Canaanite nations around Israel were given to sacrificing children, sacrificing infants to the god Molech. And the scriptures tell us in Leviticus 18, in Deuteronomy 12, in Deuteronomy 18, in Jeremiah 32, that that's an abomination to God, that children should be sacrificed, killed, sacrificed to idols. You say, well, that, yeah, that's a Canaanite pagan religion. How, how does it have a parallel in a culture like ours here in Canada? We're not sacrificing children to some gods, aren't we? What was the purpose of this sacrifice in the Old Testament? They were sacrificing to the gods of fertility. Why would they do that? They were doing that so that the gods of fertility would bless them. Why would they want the gods of fertility to bless them? Because they wanted their fields to produce. Why would they want their fields to produce? So that they could have a good economy. Why were they sacrificing their children? For econ personal economic benefit. I would submit to you that, well, that's not the case. In all abortions in the West, it's certainly a factor in many abortions, the inconvenience of a child, the economic inconvenience of a child. So God's word has addressed it. How big is abortion in Canada? Maybe you're not aware. Between 1974 to 2010, there are no uh, updates. Stats Can does not have more updated uh, numbers than 2010, or I would have brought them to you, 3,191,362 children have been aborted, implantations, pregnancies have been ended in Canada. That's 10% of the population of Canada. Approximately 100,000 abortions occur per year since 1990, every year. We're the 10th highest in the world. Russia's number one, China's number two, USA's number seven, we're number ten. And it might be or should be alarming to all of us Canadians that there is, in Canada, we are the only country in the Western world with no abortion laws. In other words, there is no protection by the law for life that's pre-delivered in Canada. 
If you can find an abortion clinic to abort your child one day before delivery, if you knew when that was, it's legal in Canada. If you kill your baby one day after birth, it's murder. Seems to me we probably have some problems with our law or lack thereof. Births in Canada, 350,000 per year. Deaths through abortion, 100,000. So one in three of every possible human being in Canada is aborted. Those numbers sound big and maybe they don't mean something to you. Maybe visually you don't really get what that really is. Let me help you. In uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, we were all pretty much horrified that anybody would go in and kill 147 students in a Kenyan university, remember? We were shocked and horrified. Couldn't imagine how anybody would do that. If you're willing, um, I I want to uh, give you a visual this morning of how many babies are killed every day in Canada. Would everybody in this section please stand up? You probably need a break anyway. Everybody's wishing, pick me, pick me. Would you all stand up in this section as well? And probably at least this top balcony section here. Would you all stand up too? Don't lose your balance. Okay. This is how many people are killed every single day in Canada through abortion. 274 people today, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. There is a jet plane of people goes down in Canada every single day. You can be seated if you want. And we have to put up with the propaganda in this country of convenience. Showing bludgeoned seal pups is not considered manipulative by the animal rights activists. In fact, they're called social champions. But showing dismembered fetuses to prevent abortion is considered by anti-abortion activists brainless, dangerous blight on culture. The practices of scientific absurdity happen every day in our hospitals in Canada. In side-by-side hospital rooms in this country is the aborting of a perfectly healthy baby and the spending of thousands of dollars performing heroic interuterine surgery on a deformed baby's heart. Now why is one baby more valuable than the other? Who makes that decision? Who has the right to make that decision? Is that decision based on good fortune of having a mother carrying you who wants to carry you through to the end? Thankfully, all of us in this room had a mother who wanted to carry us right through to the end. There's the social contract of valued life. Many of you read Tim Challey's stuff. He writes well. He writes this, the world only works when life is held as precious. Each of us wants to live more than we want to die. We are overwhelmed by the longing not to die and consumed with a desire to go on living. Isn't that, that, do we understand um, 
that each of us, every day of our lives, gives no thought to the fact that, that the only reason that each of us can venture onto the road or walk across the street or, or gather with people is, is that we trust the social contract that the people around us value life. That the person driving the car in our direction considers their life precious and the life of the people on the other side of the road precious. That's the social contract we live by. When that social contract breaks down in a culture, there's no more protection for life. We see this happening every day as, as uh, suicide bombers walk into a gathering of people and, and no longer value the preciousness of life. Or when a young man drops a, 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 a pressure cooker with nails and tacks and all kinds of other things loaded with explosives at a, at a, at a, at a, a, a marathon and, and walks away and allows people to be destroyed. You've lost touch with the social contract that we all count on and we've allowed our culture to lose touch with the social contract of the most vulnerable. What's wrong with us? How did we so lose our way? And until children can protect this truth themselves, parents have to guard the life of the children they produce. That's the social contract we have with each other. That's the social contract our parents followed through with. And I would submit this, that unless a person is totally invested in this ideal, the social contract of the preciousness of life, they should not risk the possibility of pregnancy. They're not ready for it. If ever. So what should God's people think? Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5? Because the Apostle Paul presents to us a better way to live. But not just a better way to live. He commands a better way to live. In Ephesians chapter 5, I just want to catch up with a few verses. Three or four verses. Verse 8 to 11. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Do we realize who we are? Do we realize what our mission is? Do we understand what God has, has, has commanded us, commissioned us to do and be? You are light. Not you're becoming light, not you will be light. This is a fascinating and quite an amazing and significant description of who we are. We were once in darkness. We were once sons of disobedience. But now, in Christ Jesus, you are light. Everyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ has this new description, the new brand. You are light. You bring the truth. God's people are uniquely positioned in this world to shine forth the light of truth. If we don't shine the light of truth, no one will. 
We've been granted that status because we know God's word. We know what is right and what is wrong. There's a fruit, there's a look to this. And it says there, there's three things that are demonstrated by people who are the light. They are righteous, they are good, and they are truthful. That's what it says in the text. Righteousness, the right way to live. Goodness, treating people with kindness and grace. And truthful. We know the truth. And we tell people the truth. That's our unique brand in Christ as related in the scripture text here. Because of who we are, we're called to live as children of light. You know the truth, so live the truth. Focus on the truth and what you think. Find out what pleases God, it says here. We're not to be in the dark about these things. We're to ask the questions about human life and the value of human life and then find out what pleases God. If you're unsure, if you don't know, find out. Don't blunder your way into how the culture thinks or what the culture does. Does eliminating life please God? I would say a thousand times, no, it does not. Abortion, assisted suicide, euthanasia. And furthermore, it says in the text, have nothing to do, verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. And we can say, okay, we'll wash our hands. We'll have nothing to do with this. And so far as it, you know, is within our power, we won't do anything like that. But it doesn't stop there. It does not stop there. We stop there. What does it say? Tell me what the next phrase says. Rather, expose it. We've stopped at... Okay, we'll back away. We'll, we'll cut ourselves free from this stuff. We won't, we won't be found doing things in the darkness or of the darkness. It doesn't just say that. It doesn't stop there with absence yourself. It says, expose the things that are wrong. You're the light. I'm the light. If we don't tell people what's wrong, how will they know? Now, I know some people say, it's not mine to judge. I wish I could put that to bed forever. You know, if you, you could make my life complete. If Calvary Baptist Church people, if, if it would be said of us, nobody from Calvary Baptist ever says it's not mine to judge. It is yours to judge. We are the salt and the light of the world. Not to be judgmental, but in order to determine what is right and wrong, you have to make a judgment. And you have to be willing to say, that is wrong. Now, I'm not going to say everybody's like this, but I have a feeling that a lot of people use this, it's not mine to judge, punt, because they're cowardly. We're called to be courageous in Christ. We are called to be the light of the world, to tell people the truth. So what does exposed look like? I'm just going to run down a quick list for you. You can get this. I, took a, I adapted this from John Piper's very American version. Why wouldn't it be American? He's American. I've Canadianized John Piper. So I'm plagiarizing, giving rights, don't know what copyright, whatever. I, I think you'll forgive me because he's so passionate about these things. We're called to, what, what should we be exposing then? To expose the fact that there are 100,000 abortions in Canada every year. To expose the fact that 30% of all babies implanted in Canada are killed by abortion. To expose the fact that by the eighth week, the heart of the baby has been beating for a month. There are measurable brain waves. There's a response to touch. There's thumb sucking, grasping of the hands, swimming with the arms in the amniotic fluid, distinct arms and legs and sexual organs. 
to expose the fact that Canada has no legal protection for delivered babies up to the end of term, to expose the fact that there's inescapable schizophrenia in aborting a perfectly normal 22-week fetus while at the same hospital performing interuterine surgery on its cousin, to expose the fact that viability outside the womb is not a criterion of personhood and right to life because we ourselves don't want to give up our personhood and our right to life if we must be sustained on a respirator or a dialysis machine the way a baby has to be sustained by a placenta, to expose the fact that the size and reasoning power of a tiny person is irrelevant to human personhood because if it were, we might allow tiny and unthinking newborns to be killed. To expose the fact that genetically, human embryos and fetuses are utterly different from all other animal life. If they are just left alone with nothing added but nourishment, they will grow up. To expose the fact that if it is unlawful to crush the egg of a bald eagle and a sea turtle, it is not excessively restrictive to make it unlawful to crush the fertilized egg of a human. To expose the fact that when two legitimate rights conflict, the right not to be pregnant and the right not to be killed, justice demands that we give place to the greater right, the right that does, not, does the least harm, the one that does not willfully kill. To expose the fact that there are really no unwanted babies, childless couples must go outside of the country and wait years to meet the demand for babies. To expose the fact that it's hypocritical to speak as though choice were the untouchable absolute in this matter and then turn around and oppose choice in matters like sex education, seat belts, baby uh, car seats, bicycle helmets, public smoking, prayer in public and minimum wage and dozens of other issues where so-called pro-choice people join the demand that people's choices be limited to protect others. It's a sham argument. All choices are limited by life. And on and on we could go. What's next? We all know what's next. We all see it coming. It's not hidden anymore, and we all predicted this. We all said as soon as we become careless with life in the womb, life won't matter at any stage of life. We already know that there are bills being put before our own parliament about end of life, assisted suicide, euthanasia. How long? until that's actually taking place, and then how long after that until we decide that, well, inconvenient people should be done away with at any stage of life? And then how soon is it until we get rid of all blue-eyed people and brown-haired people? Everybody's looking at each other. <laughs> I picked myself. Some of you are saying, that would be good. Um, listen, if we don't speak up the same thing will happen that happens every day in Canada to 274 human beings being fashioned after the image of God our father God help us to do better First in our own lives, in the lives of our families, in the lives of all those around us. We've call, been called to have nothing to do with the things of darkness, but rather to expose them. Please help us, Lord. For Jesus' sake, amen. So what can we as God's people do practically? We're called to do something. Not long ago I was meeting with uh, our MP, uh, Colin Carey, about this matter of no laws on abortion and where it was going to go. And 
And uh, we talked about where to draw the line, at least create a law. He said, where would you give me? He said, where could you give me? And I said, I can't give you anything. I want all 100,000 of those babies. He said, well, we have no infrastructure in Canada to take care of all those babies. So that's the issue. If we, if we are serious about this, you know what God's people need to do? We need to be forming adoption agencies and possibilities, more possibilities for unwanted children who are not unwanted by God to be wanted. And it really is going to be up to us to speak into these things and to do some practical things and to come alive and offer the alternative in practical ways. It's not good enough to say this is wrong. It's imperative for us to say this is what we could do. This is how we could help. We want all those babies for the kingdom of Christ. An opportunity to hear the gospel and respond to him. So let's not just shout at the darkness, but let's offer an alternative that is light in Christ. One of the commentators said this, and it's good. The challenge of Christianity is to keep the lights on. I like that. That's who we are. We're the people who keep the lights on. Let's make sure we do. Our Father and our God, there is grace and mercy at the cross. Oh, how we thank you. We thank you for your forgiveness where we have failed, where we have wronged you, where we have not responded to the preciousness of life the way we ought. And so, God, I pray that you would help us from this moment forward to seek repentance, seek forgiveness, and to move forward as children of light, oh God, keeping the lights on in our country. For your sake, I pray. Amen.